Bitcoin, crypto bubbles, passive indexation. There's a lot of financial jargon out there. Old Mutual can help you make sense of it all and give you great advice to make the right decisions. If you've got a question or want to know how to get the most out of your money, call them on 0860 60 60 60 or speak to an old mutual financial advisor or your broker. Today's the day. Get great financial advice so you can do great things. Old Mutual is a licensed financial services provider. The Money Show on 702. Your number one news and talk station. Your fast fact question this evening. Who is selling a 76% stake in a loss-making national airline? There is a country selling a 76% stake in a loss-making national airline. Who, which is that country? Um, 31702 and 31567. Send us an SMS. 702 and Cape Talk. The Money Show. Cornelio Kivi is the head of credit risk management at Ashburton Investments talking this evening about independent power producers and the High Court, Cornelio, today rejecting an urgent application to an interdict uh, to interdict the signing of the outstanding renewable independent power producer project. Lots of P's in there, but it's very, very good news. Uh, where's Cornelio? Cornelio Kivi. There you are. Good evening, Bruce. Sorry. And good evening to your listeners. Um, Bruce, you're right. It is good news for, for the independent power producer um, program. And, uh, yeah, so hopefully this could lead to unlocking some of that investment that's uh, that's been pent up in this program over the last uh, three years or so. Now, a lot of people talk about these things as if they know what they're talking about. These are 27 individual entities, independent power producers, who are generating electricity either from wind or from sun. Um, and are capable of delivering to the grid the energy that they are harvesting from natural resources. Um, explain to me, please, the state of these companies and what, what impact these delays have had on them. So, Bruce, I suppose a good place to, to start is almost at the origination of this program. So you'll, you'll very well remember the rolling blackouts we had towards the, the end of the 2000s, and that obviously led to... To, to, to the government um, accepting that we do need to introduce independent power producers into the power mix and also move away from coal um, towards more renewable sources. So what then happened is we, that we had in 2011, we had the first round of these uh, power producer projects awarded. And since then, there's actually been over 6,000 megawatts of, of, of power um awarded to, to these projects uh, across over 90 different power plants that, that use these natural resources. So during those first few years, it did exceptionally well. And you'd find that um, you know, these, these projects that uh, are currently delivering over 3,000 megawatts of power into the grid, and that was achieved in, let's call it, five years. And uh, so what you had is you had the ability to attract private capital of almost 150 billion rand over that time. Um, and you were able to build quite a meaningful uh, level of power uh, production in a short period of, of time. So what then happened is in between the four, you had these 27 projects that was an extension of the, of the program uh, that was awarded in, in April 2015. And when it came time for, for ESCOM to sign the off-take agreements with these projects, uh, I think that's when, that's when 
the problem started coming in. And since then, you've had the delays, and obviously the project owners and the funders would not start building these projects if you're not certain that ESCOM will be paying for for the electricity you produce. So that's really been the holdup, and that's been about uh, estimates of between 55 and 60 billion rand of investment that has been that has been waiting to be, be deployed. Uh, one of the big issues, one of the big contentious issues, is the cost of the independent power producers uh, versus the cost of uh, coal production versus the cost of nuclear production. And we know that nuclear now finally has been shelved. Um, I don't know, megawatt for megawatt, uh, kilowatt for kilowatt, what is the best comparison? Uh, how do these shape up relative to what we have at the moment? Bruce, I think the first thing that we need to acknowledge is that the tariffs were high during the initial rounds. But, you know, those tariffs needed to be high because you had to test the, the robustness of the independent power producer procurement program. And you also had to convince international and local equity and debt investors to actually commit funding to this program. Uh, since then, we've seen the tariffs come down quite sharply for these proje- uh, projects. So if you look at the initial bid window for wind uh, projects, uh, they were paid uh, 151 per kilowatt hour on average. And in bid window four, where, uh, where we currently are, that's come down to 75 cents per kilowatt hour. And on the solar side, that was over 3.60 in the first bid window, and that averages at 91 cents. So you can see the meaningful reduction in those tariffs. Now, so, rel- relative to coal-fired power, um, 75 cents uh, for wind and 91 cents then for solar, um, what is coal? So it's difficult to say. You've got opinions saying it's at around 50 cents per kilowatt hour. You've got some people saying it's over 80 cents per kilowatt hour. I think, you know, it's a trade-off. You know, with coal, you've got constant power, but, uh, you know, your fleet is aging. So you've got got, um, these power stations are polluting. Uh, There's a carbon tax coming into it, and those costs, uh, you know, that need to be taken into account. And also the cost of... Of, of, of maintaining these power stations and, and after 50 years of life to then restore them to meet the, the current standards actually require quite a lot of, of, of capital investment as well. And I'm not sure if that is often taken into account or, or maybe it is depending on which, which side of the, of the interest group you, you're representing really. Uh, and so that's a, that's a, that is the problem though, Cornelia, with this, with this industry and with uh, is the, the huge vested interests on every side. And you can get perfectly sane and reasonable scientists who, depending on which side of the argument they're on, will construct the opposite argument. Um, you know, whichever argument suits, uh, suits their, their particular agenda at any one time, simply because there, there is no real clarity on this. What is clear, though, is here you can incentivize independent power producers to produce power for you at a fixed price you know what it's going to cost you if they make a mess with their in with the, with their setup and their installation it's their loss it doesn't cost you a single cent yeah. um that's the big advantage you don't have to take out uh, uh double the national debt or quadruple the national debt over a period of 10 years by building nuclear you don't have to do all of this stuff if you get independent power producers to come in at an agreed price and produce this energy for you 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 correct. I think maybe as an example, the the, the power that's been produced currently, the the combined production capacity, as I said, is over three thousand megawatts. That was done in a couple in in let's call it four to five years. And three thousand megawatts is what about seven percent of our daily requirement? Yeah, I suppose it is it's close to that. But I think it's hmm. important to compare it to something like Madupi. So Madupi is a four thousand eight hundred megawatt plant. 
the project was originally launched in 2007. As you know, the first unit was commissioned in August 2015, and I think the second unit uh, more recently. But that was supposed to be commissioned in 2012, the first two units. So you can see that, um, you know, it's, 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 it's a technology that is faster to roll out, it's simpler to do. But again, it needs to be, it needs to be measured against uh, a balance, you know, where you have intermediate supply of electricity and long-term supply and, and stable supply of electricity. But I think more importantly, Bruce, it, it comes down to leveraging the private sector to build South Africa's infrastructure. I think that's what this program has been more successful than any other program in the past in South Africa, is that it's leveraged 200 billion rand of private funding um, to increase the, the electricity generation of, of South Africa. And, you know, given where the government balance sheet is at the moment, there's a lot of infrastructure that needs to go ahead. And I think independent, uh, inter- independent partnerships is, is one, of the, one of the key ways that can be funded. So what this project, what this program does is it gives a blueprint for future private participation in infrastructure projects. So this, that's why there's such a key importance for this program to succeed, not just for the energy sector, but for infrastructure in South Africa as a whole. Do we see another round of IPPs coming through now that these 27 deals are signed uh, or can be signed? Um, do, do we see another round coming through for another 3,000 megawatts of energy? So Bruce, uh, when when the I mean, if you look at the current integrated resource plan, which is obviously the subject of much discussion, that was last done in 2010. But through that, in that plan, there's actually allowance made for over 13,000 megawatts of renewable energy. So I think what what you'll see is there is obviously scope then for the minister to procure more renewable energy. But what you are seeing is you're seeing a tightening and a, and a re, because of the the lower tariffs, uh, you're seeing a, a, a reduction in equity returns for investors. So. I think, you know, it depends on the tariffs and it depends on the returns. You know, at some stage, um, you know, equity investors are going to have to decide whether the returns are, are acceptable for, for the risk they're taking. But I think for the time being, there probably is still some appetite for additional bid windows um, if, if, if we can get these projects signed and implemented. Cornelio Kibi, thank you. The head of credit risk management at Ashburton Investments. They fund, um, amongst many others, the development of these independent power producers. Yeah, and it's a big day. It's a breakthrough in terms of power, product, power production and distribution in South Africa. The Money Show. The Markets. Well, the country's trade balance swinging into surplus after recording the biggest deficit in at least 28 years last month. So a bit of good news on the day. But the rand has been on something of a, a tear south uh, with uh, international currencies strengthening a bit. But also the Reserve Bank governor pulling no punches yesterday and saying that he believed that the rand was overvalued or the Monetary Policy Committee of the Reserve Bank believed the rand was overvalued. And he seemed to be deliberately talking it down, something he's been fairly successful of in the last day or two. But Graham Kerner, with the Kerner perspective this evening. It's the end of the first quarter. I can't believe it. Already we've had three months of 2018. Do you find as you get older, I'm told this by older people, um, the time <laughs> goes by quickly? Yeah, because we're going downhill so fast. Bruce, yeah. <laughs> I feel it, I feel it, I feel it. But yeah, the first quarter is done and dusted. Um, and as I mentioned in the introduction, I mean, we've had um, inflation under control. We have had um, a much better growth outlook coming through, um, much better trade numbers coming through. Moody's mm. a step back from the brink of full downgrade to junk. Yet the JSE is down, what, 6 7% so far this year? Yeah, it's... Um it's quite an anomaly, actually, Bruce. And I, I don't know if you remember, I think it was the first week of January when you were asking me what, what did I think the JSE would do 
in 2018. And I, I think at the time the, the market was probably at about 59,000. And I, I said a, a touch over 60. And, and, and I think the hypothesis was that um, although South Africa incorporated, and you've got some data points out of, out of the South African economy today that all sort of point to a much improved outlook, um, in spite of that, the, the headwinds, courtesy of some of the heavyweights, would more than offset that. And I think you, you've seen it in the first quarter. But I did some stats earlier today, just going back to the 1st of December, because that's when we all felt we were really staring into the abyss, you know, before the elective conference. And, um, yeah, it's quite amazing, Bruce. If you, if you look over that period, the, uh, up, up until probably about midday today, the top 40 was down 8.5%, which is quite incredible if you, if you then go and unpack that performance and you say out of the top 40 a quarter of those shares so let's say 10 of those shares were actually up by 15 percent or more so this this is exactly what we were talking about in the beginning of 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 january and what i've sort of been going on about in terms of the concentration risk of you know a handful of shares like uh you know uh, uh, naspas and richmond and 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 uh and a couple of the banks it just tends to dominate uh, the south african market which makes it almost a, a bit of a mockery when you say well you know south africa incorporated after the anc elective conference has really taken off driven mainly by the retailers the banks the life assurers and yet our market's down eight and a half percent just makes no sense yeah, I mean, the the huge uh, the huge gainers this year. I mean, if you look at the top ten gainers, um, the best performer, nearly thirty seven percent up, is Fushini, followed by Mr. Price and Trueworth. Yeah, um, and then you've got Standard Bank, Ned Bank, Barclays Africa, First Rand, and RMB in there. Um, Capitec and uh, and and Capitec and Investec nowhere near the top there. Yeah. They've been yeah you know, they've, they've they've got different dynamics driving. Them. Yeah, yeah. But interestingly, also in there, Growth Point and Redefine, two of the biggest property companies on the JSC, along with Bidvest, um, really having a very, very solid start mm. to 2018. Well, Bruce, I think what, what led probably more so by what's happened in the South African bond market, but also, um, you know, we got a rate cut yesterday. Um, although the governor was was fairly hawkish and wasn't sort of priming us for awfully much more. I think the market does feel we'll probably get another uh, quarter percent, um, let's say, in the next three or four months. Um, so I think the, the outlook for them is improving. Um, and I think it's really that. I think it's, it's the yield story that has taken them higher. But of course, you know, on the other side of the equation is the likes of, of Resilient and Nepi Rock Castle and, uh, and Green Bay and uh, Fortress that have been absolutely smashed and, of course, lost their place in the top 40. So it's just been, I think the point we're trying to make here, it's been an incredibly volatile time. And, you know, when we sort of talk about markets up or down on, on, on a daily basis, we tend to miss the big picture and just how there have almost been tectonic shifts in, in the way money is being made and, and value probably is being lost in, on the JSC, uh, courtesy of market weightings. Yeah, and, and that's that, that's the, the thing here. I mean, Naspers, um, if you have a look at it in RAND terms, is down nearly 20% this year. SAPI is down nearly 20% this year. Anglo Gold Ashanti, mm. British American Tobacco, uh, Renette. Um, also down around yeah. 20%. The big one, though, nearly losing half of its value since December, is Rock Castle. That's probably the only one that is 
really been responding to any fundamentals in its business. And that is that there is a huge amount of distrust around the valuations of that business pushing down the value of the shares. Yeah. Look, I suppose people would say, well, in an environment where British American tobacco has lost 21, then Raynette, obviously, because of the heavy weighting of, of BAT there, uh, that makes sense. But, Bruce, I think the, the key story is... On the 1st of December, a lot of people were saying, well, if the elective conference doesn't go our way, um, you know, you want to be, you know, f- you want to fill your boots with, with Rand Hedges. So when you look at the big losers, you know, Raynette Bats, uh, Anglo Gold, Naspas, Aspen, Bidcorp, Richmond, all, you know, Rand Hedges that are, have obviously paid the price uh, of, of a Rand that's firm to... Today it was a little bit weaker, but still 11.80 to the dollar. It uh, really has taken the wind out of the, the sales of the JSE. Yep. So the JSE, the performance so far this year has been very, very disappointing overall. Um, But the reasons are there for everyone to see. The South Africa's biggest companies, the companies that make more of their money out the country than in it, the darlings of the last two or three years, as increasingly companies have invested outside of the country in order to diversify their earnings and to de-risk from South Africa, have paid the price of that strategy in the mm. first quarter of this year and anyone with their business focused firmly on South Africa finally getting rewarded for their patience. Yeah, but I think the, the important thing for us, Bruce, and, and we've been sort of bleating on about this for a while, um, you know, if somebody, you know, zoomed, zoomed onto planet Earth and, 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 and had a look at the, the composition of the top 40 index, you know, six months ago, it wouldn't take them five minutes to figure out that, you know, having a third of your money in two shares um, one of which has got sort of a, a value derived from a, a technology play that is fairly, um, let's, let's just say the valuation was fairly stretched and it's probably been powered by a combination of a lot of, you know, straight line thinking and, and the fangs that have been performing. You would have to say, you know, after five minutes, they'd probably say, well, hang on a second, this probably is, uh, you know, is excessive concentration in two stocks. And and unfortunately, that's my big criticism of of passive in South Africa. I'm not a critical, uh, well, I'm not a critic of passive per se, but, you know, there's just too much top 40 playing, um, you know, and there, there's not enough sensible deconstructing and, and giving people m- more equal weighting. Mm, okay. Uh, the, Karen Richards on Twitter today mm. made a really interesting point, and she does often, if you don't Agreed. follow her, you yep. should. You should. Um, post Nenegate, companies that made international deals went up. Now, yep. companies selling international businesses are going up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and she's referring, I suppose, specifically um, to, to Netcare, Net yeah. um, which is up 10% in two days, courtesy of its decision to finally exit the United Kingdom. Oh, Bruce, I remember sitting in a dealing room when that when that uh, general hospital group deal was first announced and we thought what the hell are these guys doing it almost felt like a if i say an, a reaction in anger i'm not being sort of dramatic but it was almost like you know what we've got to get out of here we've got to internationalize and the valuations you know be damned and and i, I think the truth is um mediclinic is paying the price for that and a lot of south african companies you know, the South African companies that went and bought retailers and the likes of, of Breit, of course, a lot of South Africans are really licking their wounds. And I think value will, will be destroyed for, for quite a lot longer before that wheel turns. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of the time, and I think that's what Richard Friedland was saying to you earlier in the week, you know, he spent the better part of the last six months just really trying to, trying to fix, um, you know, the UK operations and neglecting really the, you know, the engine room in South Africa. Yeah, and um, what a waste of time it has been for investors in that company. We'll see whether or not they managed to extricate them there. Uh, also in the hospital sector, the chairman of, of MediClinic stepping down, the CEO of MediClinic stepping down, and the market welcoming that one as well.
And I think uh, MediClinica, I, I think also benefiting from, from NetCare, and pe- people may be saying, you know what, if the South African hospital groups are maybe a little bit more judicious, and, and, and I think in the case of MediClinic, just get those Middle Eastern operations, you know, clean and, and, and working properly, it's probably quite a good story, but I think MediClinic going up with NetCare and sympathy. Graham Kerner, with the Kerner Perspective on a Thursday night. Mr. Kerner, thank you very much indeed for coming in. Uh, we'll update you with the fast fact in just a bit if you want to have a go. Um, which country is selling a 76% stake in a loss-making national airline? 31702-31567. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. So fast fact question this evening. I said, who is selling a 76% stake in a loss-making national airline? And a whole bunch of you coming through going, it must be SAA. It's not SAA. It's not going to happen at SAA, not for a while at least. But India, Air India has been surviving on government bailouts since 2007. It sounds familiar, doesn't it? The Indian government, they're fed up and is selling three quarters of its holding along with its 60 billion rand debt saying it must be listed on the stock exchange, at which point then the government will sell the remainder of its shares in the national carrier. Our government today had a briefing in which it supported the new board and chief executive and their attempts to turn around the business. Um, Selling a stake in SAA? Well, certainly not at this stage, but the losses tripled at SAA to a 5.6 billion rand net loss today. Give Vuyani Jahana a chance. He is the new chief executive. I think he's been there about six months already. Operationally, you can see changes at SAA, the way the bookings are done. We spoke to the CEO of Mango last Wednesday, and I had observed that um, you can go onto the SAA website now and book Mango flights if that becomes the cheapest option for you through the SAA uh, ecosystem, if you like. And, yeah, so they're changing things, the way things work at SAA. Will it be enough? to take SAA from deep in the dwang, deep out of the doo-doo, um, and into into positive territory again, I wonder. 702, The Money Show. Call Bruce on 011-883-0702. Big announcement from National Treasury this evening that they have asked... Uh, uh, the tax commission, uh, Judge Dennis Davis, and have said to him, please, Judge Dennis Davis, will you have a look at zero-rated items? And so with the VAT rate going up from 14 to 15% this Sunday, the 1st of April, um, the, the pr- pressure is on the National Treasury to make sure that the VAT regime is not regressive. And there are only 19 zero-rated food items on the list of zero-rated items. And Judge Dennis Davis has been asked to appoint a panel of independent experts to review the current list of zero-rated items and then to report back uh, by the end of July, I think it is. It's either June or July as I look at this statement for the first time. Um, And uh, he would then have to give that guidance to the Minister of Finance and see whether or not to expand that list in order to reduce the very worst negative effects on South Africa's poor. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield. We'll talk to SARS all about their readiness to implement the new VAT rate uh, this coming Sunday. Tashma Ismail has had a very, very busy week, Chief Executive at the Youth Employment Service. Have you now suddenly, Tashma, realised how much you've actually bitten off? It's a huge task you've set yourself. Yes, Bruce. I've decided to give up on sleep for the next few years. <laughs> you do sound a bit tired. Um, but give, give it us is a, big. 
Give us a sense of it. I mean, you had that huge launch. President Cyril Ramaphosa was there. Many of your business uh, supporters were there. Colin Coleman from Goldman Sachs, South Africa. Uh, I, I saw Jabu Mabuza there. I also saw Stephen Kosef and others there. You've got some really powerful, high-level support for this initiative to create a million internships, work opportunities, call them what you like, but getting a million young people into work over the next three years. Yes, there's a lot of um, support and goodwill that's coming from the private sector. I think everybody has seen the cliff edge. Um, Everyone understands the the macroeconomic impact of that many young people, 5.9 million young people who are out of work and, uh, you know, given their need status, uh, not in employment training or education, um, the difficulty in, in actually placing them in current spaces in the economy. Um, and, and I suppose that's, that's part of the support is, is that uh, business understands that this is a big societal problem and these big, hairy societal problems eventually come back to bite business uh, in the proverbial backside. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you, you talk about big, audacious uh, plans here. I mean, big, hairy, audacious plans, aren't they, called? Um, to get a million youngsters into the workplace, I mean, the number of a million is massively daunting. Do you believe for a moment you will achieve that million? Or is the million just there as the big goal to see how close you can get? I mean, it is a big goal. But if we don't get there... I mean, even if we get to the million, Bruce, we're talking about a six million youth unemployment number. The million is still, you know, one sixth of the way. So we we have to set the goals big or we don't move things at all. What is encouraging is, you know, our growth forecast has been up to 2%. Um, That that creates a a different sentiment around hiring. Um, And also, let me put it this way. Say you take 500,000 SMMEs. We only think of the big companies with this initiative, but it's actually broad-based business. We want to ask every business in the country that can take on an employee or a few or a thousand to please take them on. But if if 500,000 SMMEs each just take one person on for a year, that's 500,000 jobs. So, you know, if we if we go at this as a collective, if we go at this as a country and we all align around some national priorities, and I have to argue, not because I'm, I'm CEO of this initiative, but, you know, if you look at the data, um, this should be an, an item on the national agenda. Um, and if we all work towards it, we, we could get that number. Um, but, but it's going to take a collective effort. Uh, it's not going to work in silos. How are you going to inspire businesses to do this? I mean, you can do lots of interviews, you can talk about it a lot, and you'll have uh, many worthy people uh, rubbing their chins and telling you what a good initiative it is and how powerful it is and how positive it is. But when it comes to actually signing on the dotted line and making a commitment, are you going to be able to get that people to follow that through? So there, there are, um, there's the Employment Tax Incentive, which is uh, available for the next two years at least which gives you a 1,000 rand back on uh, an under 6,000 rand salary. That's a significant incentive. On, you know, on, um, on 330,000 jobs a year um, at, at entry-level salaries, that's $4 billion by Treasury back into your pocket from those, from, from those salaries. And then today, um, hallelujah, the Gazette was published, um, and uh, it's, it's got an amendment to the codes. What is superb in terms of the philosophy and and the trend is this is BE spend that can be directed 
towards a truly broad-based audience. Black unemployed youth, 5.9 million. You know, this is a broad base. Um, it's about economic transformation by bridging the distance between unemployed youth um, and the economy and, and, and participation in the labor force. Um, and, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's a fantastic and significant move by the DTI uh, to recognize the spend. Um, the Gazette has got some elements in it that are going to be open for public comment in the next 60 days. And, you know, if we can create uh, a good practice note that, that business can buy into with this uh, amendment, um, it's a significant contribution or recognition um, that would act as another sweetener. So, uh, you know, I think companies understand the importance of, of contributing to the social compact. Um, it, it's good for all of us. Um, you know, we're going to be telling stories that hopefully motivate the country over the coming years. And, um, you know, these these two um, contributors by government, and we we understand that there, there may be more coming online, um, are important um, in, in changing the mindset of companies. And, you know, the, the, and let's not underestimate the, the impact of charismatic leadership, um, you know, and, and responsible leadership and how that can motivate people. We see this, you know, in the corporate sector. You have a, a really great charismatic CEO and uh, people follow them and, and people buy into the vision. And I think he's painting a really beautiful and compelling vision of what mm. South Africa can be if we do start to get these business, government, labor, um, uh, societal relationships going and working well. You and I have spoken about this before in terms of the mechanism of where you get your first job. It's, uh, statistics will show how much easier it is to get the second job or to get a full-time job. People out of work in their teens and in their early 20s, very few of them will ever get formal employment. So that's the one side of this equation. The other side of this equation is if you can put 6,000 rand into the hands of a young person um, from, a, from a position of dignity, from a position, a position of purpose, and from a position of some spending power, the work you did when you were at Gibbs and, and the book you mm. wrote about the base of the pyramid, suddenly that is spending power in communities that possibly didn't exist or certainly had minimal spending power. Young people in these communities, it, it starts enhancing um, communities as well. Absolutely. So, you know, one of our strategies with the, with the, the service is that there will be an SME placement strategy and uh, a strategy to, to develop and grow SMME. So we understand you can't uncouple uh, SMME development from employment creation. The, the two go hand in hand. And so we must work on both. Um, now, when, when you start to develop young people in those communities, it's a direct spent in that area because they're not spending it on transport to get to you know distant places and spending the money there, A. Um, but B, there's this psychological... Um, and 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 uh, emotional shift when a person becomes employed, they suddenly change their whole outlook. Uh, they're not despondent anymore, and that self belief is as much of a catalyst as that reference letter um, that you get that de-risks you. So you know there's there, uh, there's a lot being written in, in behavioural economics around the psychology of poverty, and uh, and how people are trapped in a subsistence mindset. And giving them this opportunity to, sh to prove their capabilities can often unblock that. 
Thank you so much, uh, Tashma Ismail, this evening, Chief Executive with the Youth Employment Service, the Yes Campaign, launched uh, with great fanfare earlier this week with uh, President Sir Ramaphosa, some government figures there, some business leaders there, to very high-level support for the Yes Initiative. And as Tashma Ismail explains it, you go, oh, that's entirely doable, but it's only doable if you you and yeah and you um accept that you can make a difference by taking a relatively small amount of money and committing it for 12 months to giving a young person access to the workplace that otherwise they would not have got and who knows you may very well uncover the next diamond in your business you may very well at the end of a 12 month internship say to this person Actually, you are an extraordinary individual. We would never have met you any other way. Please, will you stay? Here is a full-time job. That sort of follow-through is what South Africa so desperately needs. The Money Show. FAQs. So our FAQ this evening, and these are questions that you send to us and you say, well, I'm worried about this or I'm curious about this or I don't understand this. Please, could you explain that? And what we do is we find answers for you in our Money Show FAQs. Um, and uh, tonight's FAQ is, is South Africa ready for the VAT increase? Well, I'm not ready. Are you ready? I don't want a VAT increase. Going up from 14 to 15% on Sunday, SARS says it is ready. Narcisio Makwakwa is group executive responsible for relationship management at the SA Revenue Service. Now, says, yo, are you ready? What is there from a SARS perspective to be ready for other than opening the door wider for the cash to flow in? Uh, good evening, Bruce, and to all the beloved taxpayers. Yeah, SARS <laughs> is, <ready. laughs> yeah, is ready. Well, specifically, we talk about the businesses actually that have to be ready to submit their returns. So those who submit the returns on our electronic system called the e-filing system, obviously they go request a return uh, in order to submit. And that return has got some formulas embedded in it, which is about 14%, which is the current debt rate. So there is work that has to be done to ensure that, you know, the, the rates are actually fixed so that when you request that form on e-filing, you get it with a rate of 15%. However... There are those businesses which are on sort of a bi-monthly basis, uh, those that will have to charge transactions at a rate of 14% uh, for the transactions happening in March and at a rate of 15% for the transactions that will have taken place in April, that is after the VAT rate increase. So we are we have already made arrangements for to tell the our businesses, how they are going to complete those returns specifically. In the back end of the system, we have already made our own system changes to cater for the increase in the VAT rate. Now, specifically, the other taxpayers that will be impacted are the people who are doing the imports. So uh, from a customs point of view and from a post office point of view. So when you receive your goods post the 1st of April, 2015, do not be surprised, in 2018 rather, do not be surprised that the VAT will be charged at, at the rate of 15%. The post office is ready, we've confirmed with them, and our custom systems are ready. So this has an impact mainly on uh, the businesses, because the end consumer at the end of the day will just be paying whatever the, 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 the business will be charging mm-hmm. them. 
Now, Sergio, but, what, what if, if somebody is just not ready? They haven't managed to get their systems, their tills won't talk to them or whatever the case might be, and they can't update from 14 to 15% either old technology, whatever the problems might have been, and there will be people who slip through the cracks. How understanding are you going to be from a VAT return perspective um, come the, the first filing of VAT returns where people say, well, my systems weren't ready for it. You're still going to nail them for the 15%? Uh, of course, because we do allow them an allowance to do make alternative arrangements in order to be able. So here, here's another example, Bruce, which I want to use. Uh, we, 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 we have received some inquiries from some of the big retailers saying, look, I've got a million items on the shelves, and those items I've already, you know, uh, marked them at 14%. So do you expect me to be charging 15%? The answer is yes. Okay. But we come with an alternative and we say, look, we're not expecting you to go and, and, and reprice everything. All we want you to do as a transitional arrangement is that just make sure that the clients, your customers are aware by putting a notice somewhere that says, look, you might see the price at 114, but when you get at a till, I will recover and I'll charge you 150. Okay. So we give allowance for that. Very briefly, um, the story out of the National Treasury, a press release from the National Treasury this evening. The Davis Tax Commission has been asked to relook at the zero listed, uh, zero VAT rated items um, that uh, are, exist right now, the 19 zero rated items. Um, VAT remains on all items except the 19 on the list. There is no change until the Davis Tax Committee uh, says so to National Treasury and National Treasury accepts whatever recommendations they make. That is correct. And and we, we just want to make people aware that if there's any increase on the VAT zero-rated products, they should be aware that that would not be related to an increase in the VAT rate. It could be that people might just be taking, making an opportunity to increase their prices. For example, eggs, bread, brown bread, it, the price has to remain the same because they, it, there is no impact on those zero-rated goods. So, yes, with those 19 goods that you mentioned, they remain uh, 19 for now until National Treasury uh, uh, announces otherwise. That says you, Makwakwa. Thank you. He is Group Executive responsible for relationship management for all the lovely taxpayers at the South African Revenue Service. The Money Show with Bruce Whitfield on 702, your number one news and talk station. Good evening. Welcome to The Money Show. The Money Show brought to you by the Old Mutual Investment Group, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Welcome to The Money Show. On this Thursday evening, it is the eve of the long weekend, public holiday, Good Friday, tomorrow, Easter, this weekend, um, and uh, lots of people traveling. So be very, very careful, please. If you are on the roads, um, take it easy and uh, be very, very cautious. And, uh, yeah, don't let your temper get the better of you because, yeah, it can uh, be, uh, losing, your, losing your cool on the roads can be absolutely deadly. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. We'll uh, look at how much insurance you need, if any at all. Uh, a lot of people manage to avoid buying insurance for an awfully long time and it only doesn't matter until you need it. And once you need it, it's probably too late. So how do you get enough insurance without having uh, without overpaying? That's what we're going to talk about this evening. Also, I see this evening Barclays paying a $2 billion uh, dollar bill to settle claims 
for losses suffered by investors who bought mortgage-backed securities in the run-up to the 2007 financial crisis. This has been dragging on for years and years and years, but finally they've reached a settlement, and $2 billion may seem like an awful lot of money, but it would seem they got off quite lightly. Maybe it's just the American regulators trying to get rid of the problem. But uh, the Barclays chief executive, Jess Staley, saying it's fair and proportionate and it is Barclays' biggest outstanding legal issue in the United States and uh, will hopefully give investors a little bit of certainty around the future of Barclays. Barclays, of course, has sold down its uh, controlling stake in uh, in APSA, in Barclays Africa. It now controls less than 20% of the shares in Barclays Africa, which is in the process of changing its name, of course, uh, from Barclays Africa and back to APSA. 702 The Money Show. Bruce is on Twitter at Bruce Business. 501 pages of court papers detailing the case of about 100 applicants in a class action lawsuit against Tiger Brands and its subsidiary enterprise. Those papers filed today. Lead attorney on the class action lawsuit at Richard Spur Attorneys is Tamsankra Malusi. Tamsankra, good evening to you. Welcome to The Money Show. 501 pages. It's an extraordinary amount of paper um, with an extraordinary amount of detail which you say um, will uh, tie Tiger Brands up in knots. Yes, um, I mean it's an extraordinarily detailed case, uh, so we needed to uh, tell it the way it needs to be told, which is with a lot of detail. But obviously, not trying to overcomplicate it because it is a fairly complicated process. I mean, uh, case given the fact that there's quite a lot of um, medical um, medical stuff that is involved, which as lawyers we also <laughs> don't know much about. So we had to consult. Uh, experts to assist us in that respect. So and there's a lot that went into it, uh, not just the law, but also many other things as well, which is why we, the end product was 501 pages. Uh, the the main thrust of your argument when it comes to the case against Tiger Brands, this is a large corporate with lawyers on retainer with deep pockets. Um, your yeah. clients don't have that same level of, of leverage. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, the clients that we have do not have a lot of money to pay for legal fees. I mean, if you, by nature, Poloni in South Africa is largely consumed by people that do not have a lot of money. It's a cheap form of protein. So, so, so if you look at the demographic of people that are affected by listeriosis as a result of consuming this product, you, you're not looking at rich people here. So they're not particularly wealthy people. So we, we're running this litigation uh, on risk as, as the lawyers. Uh, we, we're not asking for people to pay us anything up front. Uh, with the hope that we'll be able to recoup our fees when we're successful against Tiger Brands. Um, and when it comes to a case like this, typically yeah. how much money do you take? Because you, you operate on risk. You, you, you yeah. take the case. You, you, do you have, agree up front with the 100 people who have signed up for the, uh, for the case as to how much they, what percentage of the winnings yeah. um, they must, would be expected to pay, pay to you? Precisely, precisely. So, I mean, that all... There's a Contingency Fee Act in South Africa that regulates uh, what percentage that you can take as lawyers. It provides for up to 25% of the winnings. Uh, so, so, but we're not. That's not what we're asking for. We're asking for for 20%. With that said, though, our priority. We've also worked into the Contingency Fee Agreement, which we've also filed in court for the judges to see that in the event that we are able to. Uh, recoup our cost or our fees from Tiger Brands, that agreement falls away. So people are not going to be able to pay us anything. And now. Our, our first port of call is to obviously try to recoup our costs from Tiger Brands.
Right. Um, let's uh, let's assume you you get a favourable outcome on this. I mean, what sort of time frames are we looking at? So often these cases uh, go to the, the last the last side standing, the last party still standing after many many years. For sure. I mean, yeah, it's very difficult to say at the moment. So we filed our papers today, and in terms of the law of civil procedure. Um, Tiger Brands, through their lawyers, are supposed to enter a motion to oppose the application within five days. And after that, they're supposed to file the answering papers after 15 days. It seems simple if you put it like that. But <laughs> there's, there's, after that, they can ask for a whole lot of other things. There's going to be discoveries. There's going to be so many other things that are going to go into it. Uh, and only after that process is finished, then they can ask for a date to go to court. So it might take a while. And it's very difficult to say with certainty how long it will take. But we are hoping that... Um, it will not. It will not go through the the whole nine yards. Our, our hope is that we can uh, solicit some sort of settlement from Tiger Brand on behalf of the people, because we don't want to think to go to court. Uh, it's in no one's best interest for this to, to go to court. It's not. It's not in our client's interest. It's not in our interest as a lawyer. It's definitely not in Tiger Brand's interest. So we're hoping that through us filing the papers and then seeing how compelling a case we have against them, it will solicit some some settlement against them. Um, with only 100 people have signed up with you um, in in this particular matter. More than a thousand people are alleged to have been affected by listeria uh, poisoning or listeria infection. Um, yeah. Why is such a small take up? Um, well, it's difficult to say. I'm, 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 unfortunately, I cannot answer that question. But the one thing that I can say though, is that for, for a class action, we don't need the whole thousand people to come and, and, and give and mandate us to, to represent them. By nature, class actions effectively mean that uh, people with the same objective set of, that have suffered the same objective harm from the same objective cause, um, you can bring that action on those people's behalf, even for the people that do not uh, that do not formally instruct you. With that said, though, so we structured our class action as an opt-out class action. So what that means is that once the court has approved us uh, as the lawyers to bring this class action, uh, people will be notified, and those people can opt out, so they can decide that we don't want to form part of the class, even though we fit we fit that objective criteria. Uh, we want to bring individual claims against targets, and they can happily do that. Uh, thanks to you, Tamsan Klamalusi, this evening. He is the lead attorney in the class action suit at Richard Spoor Attorneys against Tiger Brands and uh, also against Enterprise, hoping to get a settlement out of this. Um, the legal process is so slow and so agonizing and so disconcerting for anybody who's ever been through a legal process. You know how unsettling it can be. You can be as, as justified as you like and as furious as you like and as uh, completely righteous as you like. You go to court, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to win. Oh, it's a complex issue and hopefully looking for some sort of settlement. The Money Show. Personal Finance. Personal Finance brought to you by Ned Group Investments. See money differently. Ned Group Investments is a registered unit trust manager. Welcome to The Money Show this evening. Uh, in studio with us, John Manike. John Manike is a an educator. He's head of financial education at Old Mutual. I want to talk about insurance. Do you fancy talking about insurance, John? Insurance, good topic for you? No, definitely, especially uh, <laughs> during this long, uh, what we call Easter uh, weekend. Uh, okay, so we get, should we focus on short-term insurance then? Because we've got 10 minutes, and if we're going to dip into every aspect of insurance, we're going to run out of time. So mm-hmm. short-term insurance, the stuff that's important to make sure that the wheels are attached to your car, that you've had it serviced, that all of that sort of stuff. However, I, I want to look at how much is enough. 
when it comes to insurance. Um, so many of us treat insurance as the absolute grudge purchase. You don't feel like you're getting any value for money unless you make a claim on your insurance. And you, nobody ever wants to make a claim on insurance because it means something bad has happened. Give me a perspective on how you assess what is enough when it comes to, to short-term insurance. Let's say on a car or household effects or things like that. Yeah, look, ideally, you you want your insurance to actually cover uh, the cost of repairing or replacing your vehicle without any shortfalls that end up costing you extra cash. And that's why it's important that when you talk to your insurer, you need to be clear and exactly what you want uh, covered. Because especially if you've got your car financed, um, you want to make sure that you don't owe your financer after after. Uh, insurance has paid. I mean, if there's a shortfall, so there's a there's an issue of ensuring that you're not underinsured on your vehicle. I think it's worth making a point as well, Bruce. That um, I think only thirty percent uh, of uh, of cars that are insured in in, in South Africa, there are a lot of people who don't see uh, they need to actually um, uh, protect their assets. Uh, and 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 the hardest thing to do for anybody. Uh, imagine you have a finance on that vehicle for sixty months. And the fourth month you're involved in a car accident and you're not insured, it means paying for something that you don't use. What is the law around that? You take motor vehicle finance. There is a requirement when you take vehicle finance um, that the, the financier wants to see that you have got insurance. The trouble is you can go walk off the, the floor, cancel your insurance uh, on, in the hope that you, that you don't have an accident. You do have an accident. Suddenly you have, you have the, the world's biggest liability. Yeah, that, that, that's a risk that the consumer uh, you know, takes by, by cancelling insurance immediately you leave the dealership. Yes, uh, dealerships are generally very strict. They won't allow you to leave uh, without, even though it's your business, but they know that <laughs> if you can't pay for that car, then there's problems. So the likelihood is that you might even default, um, uh, you know, with your financer and there's all sorts of uh, 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 problems. I mean, uh, Bruce, I just witnessed one horrible accident on my way to the studio just a few, few minutes ago, mm-hmm. um, uh, you know, on the M1. Uh, you know, there was a bucky that was changing lanes. I didn't even see him uh, indicate. And there's, this car just came and smashed uh, into that car, you know, I stopped for, you know, and I realized there's very little I can I could do because lots of cars were had stopped there to assist. Um, so I said, look, uh, it's it's a horrible thing. I mean, I could hear, uh, you know, a, a woman screaming in that car, you know. So and yeah. these are the kind of fatalities, you you know, we see especially during the Easter long weekend. I mean, here we got a situation where. People, we think we're invincible. Um, we think we're absolutely fine. We know that we're great drivers. We know that we don't drink and drive. We know that we have a low risk. Um, uh, we have, we are, we're a low risk. But unfortunately, everyone else on the road, as it turns out, in my experience, is an idiot. Not me, but everyone else is an <laughs> idiot. Um, and, and you've got to protect yourself from other people's stupidity on the basis that 70% of the people who are driving in the opposite direction to you are not insured. True. I mean, uh, if, if anyone, anyone were to ask me, uh, does every car need to be insured? The short answer to that for me would be a definite yes. Because it should it, be law. Because it doesn't matter how you drive, you know. So uh, there's always a risk of accidents, vehicle thefts, hijackings and other unexpected events on the road. Uh, even when your car is parked at home, you know, or in a parking lot, anything can happen to that car. So, uh, so that's why it, it is important to actually insure. I mean, that's one way to safeguard your asset.
Yeah. Tell me about household insurance. This is a far more contentious one. If you buy a motor car and it costs you 100,000 rand um, and there's a repayment plan on that car, it's fairly easy to put an insurance price tag on that. But when it comes to household effects and when it comes to the fact that you don't have any new couches, all the couches that you've got in your house actually were inherited from uh, from cousins and, and, and family, <laughs> um, and, and you actually, the stuff in your house would be very expensive to replace, but in itself is pretty worthless. Nobody would give you a thousand rand for the couch you have in your house, but to buy a new couch costs six grand. Yes. How do you go about insuring that sort of stuff? Yeah, look, generally, a lot of insurers are very keen to actually um, give you a discount if you insure your car plus your household contents. Um, you'll find that uh, you, you almost pay nothing, you know, if if you're insuring both your household content and your car with the same insurer. I need, I need to talk to my insurer, clearly, yes. No, 100%. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, you wonder why sometimes the premium is so high, but as soon as you talk about... But even with uh, household content, you need to make sure that you're not underinsured. We, let's say, for argument's sake, your the stuff in your house your, is, is worth uh, 200000 and you decide to insure them for 150000 That's why you must ask your insurer to give you an inventory list or ask an assessor to come and do that if they do offer it, and make sure that you are properly insured. You're not, you're not underinsured and you're not overinsured. Um, and that, that helps. Um, you know, I think it's important as well to, to be very honest about uh, the, the, you know, your property, where you live, where you've got those assets, because they will ask you, um, you know, what kind of house is it? Do you have burglars? Do you have somebody uh, who is always in the house all the time for those who've got uh, domestic um, helpers? Or uh, or if you've got a home executive at home, do you have a lock-up garage? Is there security? Mm. You know, if, if, you, if you lie about those things and you, you're going to render your claim... Uh, invalid, you know. That's why it's important to be truthful and honest. Okay, about so it. we do all of that. Okay, we, so we're truthful on our insurance. Yet, when it comes to making a claim, I've never met anybody who's been satisfied with the with the payout that they've received. Either they were under or overinsured. This concept of being mm. under and overinsured. Take me through it. Yeah. So, so um, I think back to the point I was making earlier that if you you need to assess the value of. Um, uh, the items you want to show in your in your house, um, and and be, you know if you have a, a better or accurate um, number, that's better because then at least you know if you're insuring for three hundred thousand is three hundred thousand. But if your 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 valuables are two are worth two hundred thousand and you you insure them for hundred thousand, it means you're underinsured. You can't claim over what you what you've insured for. So and that's why it's important to do that. Again, you can be overinsured. You find that you're paying a much higher premium. You, you've asked for a cover of half, half, a, half a million, but the stuff in your house don't even make 100000 So you're actually losing money in that sense. Now, you, you insure for half a million. The stuff in the house is worth only 100000 mm. The house burns down. There's no proof of what was in the house <laughs> because it's been destroyed by fire. <laughs> um, and this is the thing I don't understand about mm. insurance. Yeah. How then does an assessor come in and say, oh, no, sorry, you were terribly overinsured, you know. Well, you don't know. Yeah. I think a good insurer will ask you for a list and say what's in your house. But sometimes, it got burnt but, with everything but, else but, in the blooming fire. You know, but at least if you've submitted a list, you can do that. But remember, an assessor can still go there. I mean, certain things can burn down, but... 
Sure. Uh, yes, he might have ashes, but uh, you know, assessors do look at this. I mean, they would send. Uh, <laughs> an how often? To look at this. How often then should you be revisiting those lists? It's so absolutely pivotal. Yeah, my my, my suggestion would be review that annually, um, because remember, insurers also would review your premium annually. Uh, you know, depending on the number of factors and, and so on. So rather review that annually. Or if you know that you you just brought jewelry in your in your house, uh, you might want to tell insurance to say, by the way, I've got this, you know. Yeah, it, it seems like an awful lot of admin, frankly. Sandy in Boxburg, you have a question this evening for John Manyike. Good evening, James. John, my question is, um, I was involved in a motor car accident two weeks ago. Mm. Once it drove into the back of my motor car. Um, the panel beaters have told me that it's going to cost 40,000 rand to repair my car. Mm-hmm. But the insurance company are saying, well, I don't think that they're going to pay that because the book value of the car is less than the damage to the car. So they want to write it off. Mm. Why do I stand in something like that? It's infuriating, Sandy. I mean, here Sandy's got a car that might only be worth 30,000 Rand, but to her, it is worth as much as a 200,000 Rand brand new car. Um, she's got it insured. The damage outstrips the value of the vehicle, and so mm. the insurer wants to write it off. She then gets the 30,000 Rand or whatever that uh, the value of the, the, the insurance company says, and she can't possibly replace that car uh, with something as good for the same price. It, that doesn't seem very fair, does it? Yeah, look, but also we need to remember that, you know, a car depreciates in value, you know, over time. So, and, and that's yeah, but why we live in the we live in the real world, though, <laughs> here, John. We live in the real world where, yes, the car may be mm. ten years old and may have a book value of thirty thousand. But you know as well as I do that the car you drive, the car you know, the car whose foibles you mm. know, you know when it splutters that actually it's not going to stop because it always just does that. Um, that's the level of security and and and, and that you have. You're not going to go buy somebody else's problem car for the same value. Mm, true. Um, and it just too often people feel shafted by the insurer. True. But, but more often than not, you find that this is linked to the very same thing of whether the car is overinsured or underinsured. Uh, but also, you know, when you take out a, a, an a short-term insurance policy, I mean, these are the kind of things you need to interrogate the insurer to say, actually, what am I getting cover for? Uh, you need to specify what you need to have the cover for. Um, that's why sometimes they do ask you, um, is the car financed or is it fully paid? There's a reason why they're interested in knowing that because to ensure that you don't have a, a, a shortfall. And it comes down to how often you review your insurance. And from everything you've said to me this evening, it strikes me that if we're not reviewing our insurance at least once a year, you're probably paying too much. And if you're not paying too much, there's a risk that you are going to be underinsured. And so when you do go back hmm. to your insurer in the event of some kind of catastrophe, you're not going to get paid out what you might have anticipated getting paid out. And that doesn't lead to good relationships mm. between clients and insurers. 100%. And and the other thing that I think listeners need to take into account is that um, just because the insurer tells you that your your insurance premium is going to go up in the next two months doesn't mean you must accept it. You still you can still give him a call and say, listen, I cannot afford to increase the uh, premium. Uh, and you can even tell them I've shopped around and I found that there is another insurer who is prepared to give me the same cover, same access, uh, and, and uh, for, you, you'll be amazed 
<laughs> how no, friendly then, what, insurance what, can become. What upsets me in those sorts of circumstances is you go, you've been with an insurer, and people, we get this complaint often on the money show. Mm. I've been with my insurer for 20 years, and I, then I, start, I shopped around and I discovered I could get the insurance so much more cheaply because they haven't challenged the insurer in 20 years, and suddenly they're probably paying twice as much as they should be. And that doesn't do the insurance industry any favors because it creates yeah. the impression, and I'm sure it's a misguided impression, that insurers are out to get you. Yeah, no, look, uh, it, it can. But on the other hand, we must be mindful that just because insurance uh, or maybe insurer is cheap doesn't mean they're going to honor your claim, doesn't mean that there's quality there because there are insurers that will offer you a very low premium. Uh, but try and claim and, and you see, uh, you know, how you... But that's a regulatory issue, surely. I mean, surely the rules are very clear. You're insured for 100,000, mm. tragedy strikes, you want 100,000 out. Otherwise, the boss of that insurance company should go to jail. But remember, there's lots of terms and conditions, so you better uh, make sure that you also um, how, how smelling are we, like an angel. Yeah, but how are we meant to understand what is right and what is wrong in this world of insurance? Quick answer for me, Joe. Look, insurance would, would send you a policy document. A lot of people don't read it. They just put And it even if they did, it. they would understand the, the legalese <laughs> and the nonsense that's written. But then ask. Then ask and say, look, I don't understand this product. Can somebody explain to me what it means? You know, so, but you, we don't you, think it, you then get the broker to explain it to you. You forget what the explanation was because three years later you make your first claim. Ah, mm. oh, it's a minefield. John, you've depressed me ahead of the long weekend. <laughs> that I was, was not the intention. <laughs> clear answers. But now that's the trouble with insurance. It just There are no absolute clear answers. But John Manike, thank you for coming in this evening. Lovely to have you on The Money Show. The Money Show. Small business. Pablo Fatidis from Auric Business Accelerator, who can tell a good idea from a bad idea at 100 paces in a wind going in the opposite direction. <laughs> What's the difference between a good idea and a bad idea? <laughs> well, there are a lot. The first is, well, where did the idea come from? You know, is it a lived experience or did your barber or hairdresser suggest it to you, Bruce? Because oh, well, if it's as a I don't have much hair. <laughs> <laughs> because if it's a lived experience and it's something you've experienced on a fairly consistent basis, so for example, an inefficiency, a problem that you faced, and you've always wondered, why hasn't someone actually solved for this problem? Or with people that you do work with that experience a problem on an ongoing basis, and when you investigate it, you realize, actually, there really is a problem over here. It, just because somebody's got a problem that is unresolved, and just because you have a problem that is unresolved, doesn't mean that you're going to create a small business in resolving that problem. The problem may not be big enough, widespread enough, profitable enough to solve. That's very true. I mean, is, the, is, is solving the problem just a cool thing to do? Or are you being driven by, hey, you know, there's a problem over there, but there's such a cool way to get it sorted. We could use this piece of tech. We could use something like that. We could put an app together. That doesn't mean that it's viable. You've got to actually figure out who has got the problem. Is the problem consistently experienced? And of the people that have the problem, how many are there? And then from there, Bruce... How am I going to reach those people? Is there a route to market to reach them? Because it might be a great problem to solve, but if you have absolutely no idea how to reach those people, how to get to those people, how to get to those businesses, your marketing is going to stall the entire solution that you built to solve the problem. It's not a great idea then. Okay. So, again, great ideas are practically implementable. Um, great ideas have great profit margins, um, and they, they make money on day one. 
or not? <laughs> I wish they made money on day one. <laughs> you know, it depends on, depends on. So uh, here's a trap that a lot of people fall into because a lot of people who start businesses typically start off life as a consultant. You know, you haven't got much money. You don't really have too much else behind you. You start consulting because perhaps you might have left corporate or because perhaps you might have developed a talent. You might have a skill set, whatever the case might be. So you sell your time. And in selling your time, you get into the market. And if you're good at what you do, more people hire you for your time. And before you know it, your time is fully utilized. You're sitting with an 8, 9, 10 hour day. And there's absolutely no time to sit, pause and say, well, could I create a product that solves the problem that I consult on to solve with time? And if you can figure out time to spend investing in building a product to replace your time in solving that problem, how's that for a tongue twister? Yes. It starts becoming a very, very interesting proposition. Mm. But most people can't do that because the moment you step back, the moment you step back to start thinking about it, the moment you step back to start investing in the product to replace yourself, you're not earning <laughs> on the basis that you're not selling time. And it's a difficult conundrum. It's a difficult loop to get out of, actually. We got some fabulous questions from people, real-world questions about how you differentiate with, whether your idea is a good one or not. So Martin from Randberg says, how do you know that your bright idea is not so bright? Because mm -hmm. that's the, the first problem is, you know, and I'm sure you've come across some really great business ideas that are dreadful. I mean, lovely ideas, but dreadful businesses. They are. And, you know, th th actually it's... <laughs> It's such a clever question to ask because it has nothing to do with how bright you are. I have seen some of the brightest people in this town deeply passionate about the businesses they're building that are really going nowhere. And the reason for that is because when you start building a business, when you drive a business, that passion blinds you. It's very, very emotional. And you are absolutely, absolutely determined. We read in books. We read it extensively. Don't give up. Whatever happens, don't give up. Steve Jobs was famous for saying that. Mm. But if you're clouded with emotion and you can't see the facts from the reality of your own mindset and differentiate between the two, it's hard. So the first thing you need to figure out is are you getting repeat sales from customers? And if it's the kind of product, Bruce, that you sell once off, are they prepared to give you a testimonial? Are they prepared to give you a referral to other people or businesses similar to them that could benefit from the service you're offering. That's one of the first clues you're going to look to. The second thing is, what are you doing? If it's five years in, are you growing at less than 20% per annum? Because if you are, it means you're not getting market traction. If it's between five and 10 years, you need to be growing at around 30, 35%. And if it's after 10 years, you should be growing consistently at around 25%. So that already gives you an indication as to whether you've got some sort of momentum or not. And then the last piece that I would look at, and it's so telling, look at how you're spending your time. If it hasn't changed over five years, 10 years, 15 years, and you find yourself doing the same thing today that you were doing 10 years ago, then I can assure you, well, it might not mean that the business isn't a bright idea, but certainly the way you built the business is not working. So one of those two are a really good indicator. And at the same time, 
being able to extricate yourself from the problem you've created at that point becomes really difficult because you're set in your ways. You can't extricate yourself from the problem because you're too close to the problem. And the self-fulfilling prophecy there is ultimately the business goes out of business because you haven't tackled the nub of the problem. It's either you or the structure that you put around the business. Completely. And you know, so many people I speak to are too busy being busy and too Mm. exhausted to actually contemplate that exact question, to say, am I in this trap or not? And because that's normal, you know, they think it's special to them. But quite honestly, it's normal. It's normal, in fact, to absolutely every single person I've ever met building a business. In that instance, go and get a point of view, but don't go and get it from someone too close to you and don't get it from someone who's going to be concerned about hurting your feelings get it from someone who's going to shoot straight and tell you the real story and preferably when you do that try and find someone who perhaps has done it in their way before and that has a bit of business experience around them as opposed to someone who's just got necessarily a degree in fact i was having a very interesting discussion an hour and a half ago with a bunch of bankers. As, 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 as opposed to this one, yeah? <laughs> yeah, with a bunch of bankers. And we were talking about it. And we said, you know, what does is, what is a university degree give you? Well, it makes you a technical expert. So if someone has a CA degree, it doesn't mean they know business. It means that they know numbers. And an MBA knows consulting. And a, an LLB knows contracts. And a plumber knows plumbing. And an electrician knows electric electrician stuff electrical stuff yes electrical stuff <laughs> what gives you insight to business are the thousand mistakes that you've made in building a business look for someone who's gone down that road and you'll get very very practical insights around your own business Sitelo in Benoni how do you figure out if you should invest in a piece of equipment now oh and in this case, I don't know what a CNC lathe is, but he says this <laughs> it's particular... It's a very expensive lathe, I'm betting. It's a 2.1 million rand lathe. That's about right, yeah. And so when you're growing a business and you need a piece of equipment, how and when and why and the, the complexity of the decision-making process on actually spending that amount of money on a piece of equipment that either makes or breaks you? Oh, look, you know, there are quite a few things you've got to get right with this. The first thing probably is going to be the timing of it. You know, right now, oddly enough, if you are bullish about the future with the Rand dollar sitting where it's at, it's not a bad time to invest in capital equipment because most of it, most of it is imported at this point in time. And if you are in a situation where, where you are bullish about the future, if you are in a situation where you have got customers that are consistent and solid and not customers that, for example, where you have one customer making up 70% or 60% of all sales. I'm dealing with a case at the moment, a very, very well-established manufacturer, brilliant manufacturer, in fact, who was relying on orders coming from big chain stores. And for absolutely no apparent reason, out of the blue, An order that was placed was then cancelled. Bruce, they've been sitting with six months of stock on hand. You know, when you have your when you have your 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 revenue concentrated too heavily on any one customer, it's not a great time to invest in big capital equipment. The next thing is, getting capital equipment on board means: do you have the skill and support to back it up? 
because you've been selling very effectively and making your widget or importing your widget or outsourcing the contract the, the manufacturing of your widget if you're going to start making the widget internally do you have the capability and skill to operate that machine because when you get an expensive piece of machinery in you've got to make very very sure you've got the skill set and then the final thing is have you run your numbers on it and Bruce the number of people who turn around and say yeah I'm gonna get this big life printer and it's going to add that extra 30% to my margin on every print job. And I'm saying, uh-huh. Just understand this. For every second that the Lytho printer is not printing, it's costing you money. And what scares me with that is that the way you then start selling changes. Because are you selling, hearing your customer's need and solving that? Or are you selling to keep the Lytho printer buzzing? If you're selling for that reason your customer's not going to see value in your offer. I will assure you of that. Yeah, um, and it comes to questions of scale. It comes to questions of skill, questions of usage, questions of how much capacity you've got, and, of course, your reason for buying. And you've got to be brutally honest with yourself as to whether or not this piece of equipment's ever going to pay for itself or whether it's going to be the albatross around your small business. Andrew from Lone Hill, how do you get the right people to do the right thing i'm learning if you want something done properly do it yourself oh it's that disease oh boy. Um, so <laughs> do i land up doing nothing else well if you're doing everything yourself you will land up doing nothing else at all you know it's been a perennial problem and it's it's i, I don't think that this is a south african thing i think it's a, a global thing and the way that i interpret these things bruce i'm you know, I've got, a, I've got an approach that is, that is considered quite unpopular around employment in many instances. In the first instance, I don't think you should ever employ people to perform jobs, to do jobs. You know, classically, you find someone who's so busy being busy, they're so desperate, they then look for someone to do sales. And sales is a great example because sales is the single most difficult job to fulfill in any business. In fact, I would almost argue that if there were a soccer pitch and a team was playing on the soccer pitch, every single person in that team playing that game are sales. Everyone else sitting on the side of the pitch supporting the team are not. Now, if you have bad players playing that game of soccer, you're going to get absolutely murdered by your competitors. And people often look to try and find and fulfill the sales function very quickly, as fast as possible. And when that happens, if you have not built a proper system to ensure the following, that number one, you can select the right person because you have a crystal clear understanding of what the selling process is. You've defined the selling process. You've defined it to such detail that when the person comes on board, you can train them up very quickly to get them selling effectively in favor of what the business can deliver as opposed to in favor of them chasing a proposed commission structure. And there's a subtle difference over there, but in terms of on the ground, it's, they're miles apart from each other. So build a system first and then employ a system operator. Your salesperson, your operations person, your accountant, whoever it might be, need to be operators mm. of systems in the business.
And and I, another perspective on this, I was chatting to Mark Lamberti the other day. Mark Lamberti, for those of you who don't know, uh, Mark Lamberti, Chief Executive of Imperial, the founding uh, managing director and then Chief Executive of MassMart, and then he ran Transaction Capital. Correct. Now, um, of course, is at the age of 70, um, is the Chief Executive of Imperial, and he's busy with a turnaround job there. He's recently also joined the board of ESCOM as part of his hashtag country duty. And I said to him, sir, how have you stayed sane over nearly 50 years in business? And he says, well, make sure that you have people around you who do the work that that you don't, not only you can do. So if there's a job that only you could do, do that job. If there is somebody in your business who can do the job at 60, 70% of your ability and deliver 60 or 70% of the job, well, let them do it. Allow them to do it because what it does is a couple of things. One, it stretches them and grows them, and that's useful for your future because then you, you, you're improving the skills of somebody in the business. Two, it frees you up to have a life or to focus on stuff that only you can do um, and, and therefore using your time more productively. And, and thirdly, it's just you cannot possibly in any business, no matter how big or small it is, do absolutely everything. You know, I would add one caveat to to what he said in that instance you know about the, the the piece about only do it if you're the only person who can do it my first argument to that would be if you think you're the only person who can do it look at how you can try and simplify it look at how you can try and break it up and simplify it because ultimately bruce you want to constantly make yourself redundant in the business whatever activity you're involved in if you can create opportunities for people to assume that role from you, then in the first case, completion is more important than perfection. People might not do it the way you absolutely want it done. It doesn't mean in the first case that it won't be done better than you can do it, but it also doesn't mean that the business is going to stall if it's not done at 100 out of 100 points, but it's done instead at 95 out of 100 points. You should constantly be looking to make yourself redundant because with that time that's available and so many people in business, especially well-established businesses say, but what will I do with my time? My whole life revolves around being busy and keeping busy. If you've got a good strategy in that business, if you've got a big vision in your business, your time will always be at a premium. You don't have to be concerned about sitting around doing nothing. Please, just one last thought on something you've just said, and I want you to elaborate on it a little bit. Completion is more important than perfection. Um, it, it's such a critical thing because I, I wonder how many small pe- business people, you know, big business people, business people generally, tie themselves up in knots because they are not yet perfect. I mean, has, ever, has there ever been a perfect version of Microsoft released, for example, and it's the most powerful software company in the world? No, I don't think it is. And, you know, there's a tremendous arrogance in the definition of perfection. It really is just your own view. And it doesn't mean that it has any validity anywhere else. The, The entire world of software development, people who have got experience in developing software have started to learn that you work with an agile approach. You look at a big picture, you take tiny small steps, you put your ego aside and you correct with every single step. And if you do it that way, without trying to build this once-off wonder, a silver bullet, as they might call it, well, then you'll figure out very quickly that the truth of what works in a business is fundamentally different to what you thought would be a perfect answer to a problem elsewhere. 
Pablo Fertides from Auric Business Accelerator. Your long weekend begins now. The Money Show is brought to you by Old Mutual, a licensed financial services provider. Today's the day. Get great financial advice. Do great things. Uh, do look after yourself this long weekend. And if you're taking a slightly longer break, like some of us are, then I really do hope um, that you have a wonderful break and that you come back refreshed and ready to, um, to, to, to tackle the challenges for the next quarter. It's been a great first quarter of 2018. Let's make the next one even better. Thanks so much.